I'll write him back. Well, I don't understand. Why do you not have a landline anymore? Because I can't afford it. There's a different price every month, and it was just an expense. I have a cell phone. Can you hear me on the cell phone? Yes, but cell phones make terrible radio. I didn't know that you had fidelity problems. I didn't think of that. You were the only person I even spoke to on that landline. Oh, this is terrible. Well, let's just do this anyways, because you sound really excited. What's up? I got hired to be a writer. Do you know DangerousMinds.net? Of course. Yeah, five million readers a day. Peter Choice, blogs. Wow. Peter, this is so great. I have a notebook filled with things. I can't even stop writing now. So hold on They're a second. If, if I go to Dangerous Minds, I'll find you right now? Yes, already. Let's... They just put one of my things up so far, but I have 30 things written. I'm amazing. I'm the best writer. H- how do I find you? Dude, I don't even have to leave the house. Remember, I, was gonna, I didn't know how to apply for a job. Can you imagine me shopping my resume, schlepping my resume through downtown? How degrading that would have been? At least I didn't do that. How do I find you on the website? Do a search for Peter Choice to see, because uh, that website changes hourly. So my piece is probably already on page three. Oh, here it is. War of the World's Opera by guest blogger Peter Choice. How did this happen? They came to me. I didn't have to leave the house after all. I I went through the Facebook, and a woman said, I work, I'm the owner of DangerousMinds.net, and I've been listening to you on the radio for a long time, and I like your style. And would you like to blog for us? Whoa. So they listen to TMI. No. It's funny because some people know me from your show, and I always get offended at that. Why? When they know me from a 15-minute conversation I have with you on a podcast, it blows my mind. To, to have people send me emails saying, uh, yeah, uh, I thought that was funny what you said on TMI. And I thought that they, they wanted to friend me because they hear my KXLU show. Well, I don't see what you have to complain about it. I mean, you are getting discovered. Yes, the best part about it is everybody was saying, you know, in order to get a job, you got to do something. You can't just sit here in the house. But that was not true. Just sitting in the house got me the job. I've been doing the right thing all along. I was always doing the thing I knew I should do, which is at least keep my show going on the radio. Because it's L.A., and, you know, people will know your name if you do a good show. You know, I've met tons of bloggers who aspire to do radio, but I think you're the first person I've ever met who wants to use the radio to move on up to blogging. Blogging leads to a whole world where money will rain down like cats and dogs. That's great. I didn't know that. I don't know too much about the money, to be honest with you. I just know that it's going to catapult because it's 5 million people reading that website. And Peter, this is so great. I am so happy for you. You're going to be very happy when you read my articles because things that I've always wondered and thought about are like legit things to write about. And I look it up online and no one's, I can't believe how no one has ever written about certain ideas that I have here. So tell me some of the things you're interested in writing about now that you have this platform. Well, since I'm a DJ, you know, I can write about an odd book that no one's ever heard of. I can write about music that no one's, that, that, that I want to compel people to listen to and what the story behind the song is. It's kind of like being on the radio and you talk about the song and you play it. It's the same thing with blogging. You talk about, but you have much more space to really research it and find out you know, things you didn't even know about it. It's, it's an amazing job. It's a lot of fun. I can do my own story about being a boy prostitute. Everyone loves that story. Did they tell you what kinds of things they were hoping you'd be writing for them? No, or? they were wonderful. They gave me carte blanche. I have carte blanche. It's up to me. The, the Internet can support your opinion if you have an opinion about something, but it's like investigative reporting. You only you can you can verify your own facts and put a story like that out. But if you want to be factual, you have to get you didn't even know there was a whole other side to that story. Like when I wrote about War of the Worlds, for instance, I I said that nobody in this country really knows about that. But then I blew my mind to find out that it was really huge all across the world except here. I thought it was really obscure. It's the same thing that you remember I told you that I'm, 
I started playing Leonard Cohen in the middle of rock shows, right? That was me, 20 years ago. Legitimizing performers that had nothing to do with rock. Now everybody does it. And I always say, you know, the reason why Leonard Cohen is so popular is because of me. So tell me what kinds of things you're going to be able to do on, on the, with the blog, similar to... Well, this, hey, hey! Like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I am a little manic. I'm manic. I went to my psychiatrist. He wanted to put me away. He said, you're manic. I can't even be happy without him declaring me manic. Okay, let's try it again. So tell me some things... take a pill. Tell me some things that you imagine you could do similar to, to like how you made Leonard Cohen famous. My sex life. I've always had a great sex life. Why? Because when I was 13 years old, I read this manual. I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I did a piece on it. Read it. So you've only done one post so far, I see. When, when is the next one going out? Oh, because I did a post about Cat Stevens, the old story about how he called for Salman Rushdie's head when the Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa over the satanic verses. This took Cat Stevens' music off the radio and he was banned for life, right? Yeah. Well, the way I heard the story was that Cat Stevens was always soul-searching. He was into uh, Zen Buddhism and Zoroastrian and tarot cards. And all of his songs, if you listen to Teeth for the Tillman, are just filled with wisdom. Here's a man that's searching for the meaning of life. He's a top 40 artist, right? And the way I heard the story is years after he faded into obscurity, someone comes to his flat in, in the bad part of London and asks him his opinion on uh, the Ayatollah's fatwa. Now, Cat Stevens claims that he never said, uh, bring me the head of Salman Rushdie. What he said is that he merely interpreted the word blasphemy from Arabic to English because he studied the Quran for 10 years and they misinterpreted him. Then they find out Cat Stevens is lying. He did say that on record. I just thought that the guy must be a saint because I never heard of any rock star or movie star for that matter, any star that gave up all their wor worldly uh, finance, that he gave up all his money he made from all those hits and donated them to charity. Nobody does that. So how could you vilify a man who did that? I was able to find this VH1 behind the music that made him look like a saint, right? So I vindicated him, exonerated him. And then I found out that you could research the internet and find just the opposite facts. I didn't dig deep enough to find out that there was proof of him saying the exact words that the Sun put in their headlines that made him a pariah. He's a contradiction wrapped within an enigma. So is this post going up? No. are a lot of work. I met up with author Margaret Atwood when the Penn Literary Festival brought her to New York this past spring for a number of talks, including one called On the Writer's Mind and the Digital Other World. Now, so many writers try and pretend today that they are down with the internet, but Margaret Atwood is the real deal. I mean, I personally will never quit Twitter because then I would miss Margaret Atwood's tweets. It all started, she told me, in 2009, when her book, The Year of the Flood, was released. I built a website for The Year of the Flood, and I built the website because we were going to do these uh, combined musical dramatic book launch events. So we needed to have a site where people could follow that, and I ran a blog on it. And then they said, you have to have this, this Twitter. And I said, what's that? Margaret Atwood didn't have to play the digital knife for very long. In fact, it only took her a few weeks to master Twitter. And now she's become sort of an evangelist on the subject as well. There's all sorts of things going on on Twitter. I've written two pieces about it, both of them for the New York Review of Books blog, yeah. 
One of them is called Atwood in the Twitter Sphere, which was my earlier adventures with Twitter. And the second one is called Deeper into the Twungle. Um, my own Twitter following is fairly widely spread because my interests are fairly widely spread. So it includes um, people interested in science who send me uh, like the latest additions to, for instance, the laboratory meat story, <laughs> what's going on with pigs, what's happening with the honeybees, uh, light up rabbits and all the rest. I will hear from my Twitter people if they find something like that. So on that end, the conservation end, the reading end, the uh, publishing end, other writers that I might put out there. So I see, actually you work for a radio station. I see it more like being a little radio station. You're sending out your tiny little radio broadcasts and you're receiving other people's tiny little radio broadcasts. With all the old media pundits and Taco Bell ads filling up my internet, I forget sometimes that the web is a totally new paradigm. And as much as I despair about all the crass commercialization and the endless PR, Margaret Atwood is a reminder that there's really something magical taking place right before our eyes. I had absolutely no chance of winning this argument. It's not a publicity tool. It's an, it's an interactive connector. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be full of people who aren't doing publicity at all. You know, they're not pushing stuff. They're, they're communicating and sharing things that they find of interest. This idea of publicity, first of all, you think of publicity as somebody sort of pitching something, like soap ads and things. Um, but I think that relationships between authors and readers are never really like that. I think they're much more participatory. They're much more... Uh, they're much less like I'm trying to sell you some soap and much more like we're in this together. Because when you think of what reading is, the relationship of the reader to the printed page is like the relationship between the violinist and the score. So until the violinist is playing, these black marks are just lying on a piece of paper. There isn't any music. What's on the piece of paper is potential music just as what's on the printed page in a book is a potential voice and story that doesn't come to life until a reader reads it. So the reader is the other end of whatever it is that the writer does, just as the musician is the other end of whatever it is that the composer does. And they're not the same relationship as that between the soap manufacturer, the box of soap, and the person doing the laundry. It's really a different thing. But what about the fact that Twitter, even more than Facebook, is the first internet service that's been designed to be always on 24-7? I mean, doesn't this, by definition, mean that it's going to get in the way of other important things like using your imagination, writing books? If you cannot control yourself from turning it on all the time, then you have an addiction problem. <laughs> you can get help with that. Uh, and there are websites where you can go that will give you help with your online addiction problems. And uh, you can also get this, prob this uh, program called Freedom, which turns off your web access for however much time you set it at. Do you have that program? I have it, yeah. But I haven't used it much, but just having it. Just having it as a reminder that you can turn it off. It is addictive for the same reason that Easter egg hunts are addictive. You know, you think, or, or that the, the mailbox used to be addictive. You know, okay, so mostly it's bills, but, but maybe there will be something nice for me. And uh, therefore, it's, it's very hard to resist uh, looking at your email and this kind of stuff because because mostly it's stuff you don't want to deal with but there might be something that you really do so that easter egg you look under the sofa there's not one there you look you know in the kitchen sink there isn't one there but there there's so there's one somewhere so it's a lot like lottery addiction or slot machines or anything else it means random random things may happen and one day something will come out that's for you Okay, L let me let me put it this way, or 
the way your fellow Canadian Neil Young puts it. He said he said on a number of occasions that if a person has any hope of making it as an artist, he or she must have a protective circle around themselves in order to create. And this is what I'm getting at. All this noise, doesn't it end up breaching the protective circle? It's entirely true that you have to set up a protective circle around yourself to keep stuff out, but uh, why do you not see Twitter as part of that protective circle? My friend and TMI regular, Tim Kreider, recently wrote a piece for the New York Times called The Busy Trap. It was a full frontal attack on the busy lifestyle that so many of us profess to lead now. Tim argued that it's better to be lazy and that most people who say they're busy are just trying to hide the fact that their lives are incredibly empty, filled only with noise. There's a good chance you've read his piece or at least had it forwarded to you because Tim's article went viral. It was the most emailed article on the Times site for almost a week, and this led to an onslaught of radio and TV requests. Tim's become crazy busy. Yeah, believe me, this is an irony that got old real fast. People are still saying, I guess you're too busy, ha ha. Um, That's not funny anymore. Uh, My life is now unprecedentedly stressful and hectic and demanding. Uh, And I do not like it one bit. You've become crazy busy. Yeah, I've been busy. Well, you sound relaxed. Where where are you now? Where I am right this moment is sitting poolside at the cabana behind my friend Steve's house in New Jersey. Uh, This is his extended 4th of July party. And this is really the first day I feel like I've gotten to do nothing and enjoy myself, even though I think I've been here since Tuesday or Wednesday. I've lost track of what day it is. No, oh, it was it was Wednesday. It was the actual 4th of July. As soon as I walk in the door, there's a call from Canadian Public Radio wondering, could I possibly do an interview right now? And I'm like, it, it, you know, it's the 4th of July here. It's sort of a national holiday. So I put the Canucks off. But then I got a call from... I don't even remember what cable network, AMC or HBO possibly. They're having some fancy barbecue and they want to dispatch a copter, a helicopter here to retrieve me uh, and and just have me over for a couple hours in the middle of the afternoon, kind of a a drop-in. Why? Uh, Apparently, TV is so desperate for show concepts that they're turning to essays for raw material. So they sent a helicopter to your friend's house to pick no, you up? No, not at his house. A short drive from here in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. Uh, and flew me across, I guess it's the sound, uh, to, you know what? I don't even know where I was. Some posh little town in uh, Long Island. I don't know Long Island very well. What kind of place was it? I think it would be fair to call it a compound. Wow. So someone hands me, like, a, a, a chilled pink minty cocktail, and I'm like, oh, great, I love these. And they were like, dude, it's all about your essay. And I realized everyone there has a chilled pink minty cocktail like the one I described in my essay, and it's in honor of me. It's like a gimmick. The, the party has, to some extent, been themed around my essay as some sort of schmoozing tactic to woo me, which pretty much works, because I am a fan of that cocktail. I mean, it's weird to show up at a party where you don't know anyone and be the guest of honor. Um, But gradually, as I spoke to people, I got the impression that maybe I was more like a performing bear or something. I was like uh, an amusing novelty. It, It was sort of like people rich and powerful enough that they read a piece by Hunter Thompson and say, hey, this dude sounds like a hoot. Let's fly him out here and watch him do his Hunter Thompson thing in front of us. Um, and, you know, in real life, I'm just some guy. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not fantastically amusing in real life. Um, 
but everyone acted as though I were. And uh, yeah, there was some schmoozy talk about this show. So they really brought you out there because some TV executives want you to have your own show. Uh, people asked me what I had in mind as though it had been my idea. Like I had come there to pitch something. Whereas in fact, they, you know, they just called me out of nowhere. And uh, so I just said, well, I think it should be called A Man Tries to Live. Um, and that's abs that just came into my head, and it's absolutely the only information I had about this show. Uh, and at first, they were very effusive. They were like, I love it. That's the title. And then they sort of had a little impromptu meeting about it and boozily decided that actually it should be called Crazy Lazy. And that they all agreed would be the name of the show, which is a horrible name. But you don't disagree with people when they're offering you vast amounts, although never quite specified, of money. So that's it? You have like a TV show now? No, of course not. That was a lot of loose, boozy talk. I mean, I think it was maybe just a, a lark for them. Like, within, I would say, four hours tops, round trip, I was back at my friend Steve's. And even as my helicopter was lifting off, I sort of got the sense that everyone was already forgetting I had ever been there. Like, even before I left, people, you know, the, the, the pink minty cocktails were uh, fading as a novelty. And people were just going back to beers and had sort of were now looking at me like they couldn't remember who I was or how I'd gotten there. So I'm not sure you should look for Crazy Lazy on HBO or whatever network it even was anytime soon. It's so amazing that all of this is happening, you know, now, like right when your book comes out. It is incredibly fortuitous. Yeah, uh, I could not have been luckier, although I'm finding it difficult to divert any of this freakish attention toward my actual book. You know, my agent, my publicist are effusive telling me I am trending wildly on Twitter and I'm like well do they pay you for that like is my book in bookstores are people buying it does this help in any way Tim? that's not clear to me alright Tim you need to pay attention to me here I know what I'm talking about I deal with authors all of the time <sighs> you need to take matters into your own hands here if the person interviewing you only wants to talk about some article that their neighbor's best friend's grandma forwarded to them on Facebook, you need to say, oh, ha, 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 that's funny. You know, it reminds me of something I talk about in a chapter in my book. You have to move the conversation. Look, you know, Ben, that's you. You're sort of a hustler and you're, that works for you, but that's never been my personality or... You know, I I'm, I tend to be I tend to be self-effacing and try and get by on charm. And so far, you know, that's been working. It's working for me. I mean, not long ago, I did sort of manage to reframe a conversation with a journalist, and will, as a result, soon be in a German lifestyle magazine called Hechtisch. You're big in Germany now, too. How is this happening? Uh, because a German journalist more or less appeared at my undisclosed location on the Chesapeake Bay. Really? I don't even know when it was. Sometime in the last few days since this essay went viral. Wait, some German woman just showed up at your place? Yeah, I mean, I was in my cabin and I heard someone call my name from out in the lawn, which is not a normal occurrence. I live in the middle of nowhere. And I opened the door and there was this long-legged Nordic woman standing in the unmowed grass. And, you know, I'm a polite dude, so I invited her in, and she was on some whole other sleep schedule. I don't know how many hours ahead or behind me she was, but uh, she was not going to sleep anytime soon. And basically, I had to go on MSNBC that morning having had about an hour and a half of sleep. Well, you know, I, I actually think... All this TV is great. It's very, very cool. But I noticed you've been doing a lot of radio, too. Yeah. I don't know. Something like 15 different radio interviews. I don't know where all I've been on the radio. Well, I, I heard you on my station the other day. Was I? Okay. Maybe. I don't know. Yes, you were on WFMU on Monday, my station. Isn't that good? Are we happy about that? No. I mean, I mean to be honest, I... I find it a little insulting that I have to hear my friend, my guest, on my station. Am I, is there some inter-show rivalry here I stumbled into the middle of? Was I supposed to ask your permission? Yes. To be on some yes. other... <laughs> yes? Yes, I think that would have been the polite thing to do. <laughs> well, you know I try to be polite, but I don't understand why you think you have some proprietary 
interest in me as a persona. I can't believe I even have to explain it to you. Obviously, if you're a regular guest on my show, you would think, oh, maybe I should call him to make sure it's okay if I go on another show on his station. Well, maybe I just assumed you wouldn't have time. What is that supposed to mean? (laughs) I haven't heard a lot from you lately, man. You've been busy a lot. You missed the uh, book release events. What what are you saying, Tim? I mean, like, when we talk on the phone, I I don't think I've ever once spoken to you on the phone when you haven't hung up on me. Like, as soon as you either have imparted or gleaned the piece of information you called for... uh, I'm you're you're off the line. I'm sitting there saying, "Okay, so maybe I'll see you Thursday. That'll be nice." And I realize I'm listening to a dial tone. Hold on, you, you're making me sound like I'm the guy in the article, the guy who always says he's too busy to hang out with you. You're literally that person. You are literally wait, that person. You, that article wait, is wait. about you. I mean, I don't mean you exemplify that guy. I mean you are that guy. That article is about you. You were the guy in the anecdote where I called you up and said, "Hey, let's do something this week," and you were like. Kind of busy right now, but if something's going on, give me a call. Maybe I can just work for a few hours. I'm like, if something's going on, I gotta like, go. What? That's like it. if Mardi Gras going on? Well, let's just say we're both busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the photographer Lowell Handler. He's come over to my apartment to tell me about his new photo book, Crazy and Proud. We've been planning to do this for a while. It took us a bloody year. Because you're walking around with a microphone, sticking it in people's faces. (laughs) Lowell says this, by the way, while poking me repeatedly in the face. But it's cool. He can't help it. Lowell's got Tourette syndrome. In the late 1990s, Lowell Handler shared his story about his Tourette's in a PBS documentary called Twitch and Shout. I tell people jokingly, yes, I starred in and narrated my own PBS film, but it's my work as a phone sex operator of which I'm most proud. And then, of course, they don't know what to believe. But the po- that's not really true. I've never been a phone sex operator, but I did. I was in a PBS movie. And do I you did. think someone with Tourette's could do phone sex operator? Uh, probably really well. <laughs> I'm not going to say what I would say because, you know, I mean, you have FCC stuff and all that. But let's just say that I have what Oliver Sacks and I used to like to call a neurologic stream of consciousness. So a lot of the filter is gone, a lot of the filter that most people have. So the thing that I kind of don't want to say the most or the thing that just pops into my mind that the average person would inhibit, I blurt out. So how does that work? For photography, if you had to explain how this gift of yours translates into your artwork, photography, how, how does that work? Well, I, I'm not really sure, but the, the Tourette really doesn't affect my photography because just like, well, bad. but just like the surgeons who Oliver has written about who have Tourette, uh, there are a number of surgeons in the U.S. and Canada who have Tourette, and when they're totally concentrating and they're totally uh, involved in what they're doing, the Tourette tends to dissipate and not be there. And it's that way with my photography. I will say that my photography uh, is based upon the very... uh, uh, spontaneous, very spontaneic, and I really work off of expressions and gesture and uh, gesticulation and uh, um, spur-of-the-moment things that tend to happen when people are on the other side of the camera. That PBS film came out just as Lowell was shopping his first book, and so he scored a terrific advance, and for a number of years he was able to live like a true bohemian artist in the East Village, taking photographs, writing. I lived like literally uh, two blocks from where we're sitting right now. My apartment was on the corner of 6th Street and 2nd Avenue. I'd basically lived off of the advance, sleeping really late and drinking coffee half the day in these coffee shops in the East Village. And I would walk my dog around the neighborhood and like literally people would come up to me, like little old ladies would come up to me and say, you're that guy on PBS, you're that guy. Or I would go to like a bar or something and order a drink and the person would say, oh, I love your work. I saw you the other night. It was like constant. It was unbelievable. I felt like, I mean, I was on television, but it was PBS. It wasn't like it was network television. But I thought that the notoriety would last forever, and uh, I thought that the money would last forever. It did. At a certain point, I realized, well, you know, my God, I was going to have to get a job. It turns out that if you have Tourette's, it's actually kind of hard to get a job. I would go on interviews, and I'd, uh, you know, I'd be making these, you know, I'd be like, 
you know, and make all these noises and stuff, and they just look at me. But then, one day, an ad caught his eye. I was looking in the New York Times, the Sunday New York Times, and I saw an ad for a recreation and media specialist. And it didn't say where it was exactly. It just said it's some kind of a facility for uh, mentally ill, homeless women. And so I figured, you know, I'll, I'll try it. I'll give them a call. So I gave them a call, and I ended up speaking to uh, these two women, and uh, they uh, knew who I was from the movie Twitch and Shout in the book. The official job title was Recreation Specialist, not Artist in Residence. But when they offered the job to him, Lowell took it. He had an idea, which brings us to the subject of his new book. One of the things that I really wanted to do as part of the job was to try to teach the women in the shelter who were all mentally ill and all homeless about photography. Crazy and Proud tells the story of Lowell Handler's experiences at this unnamed shelter, and it showcases some of the pictures taken by the women he taught. Many of the images depict the squalid neighborhood of the shelter, but the best ones feature people. There's one I particularly like of a small boy trying to show us that he's tougher than his surroundings. This little kid, this little African-American kid trying to be tough and showing his masculinity and his manhood at like age eight or nine in front of a shiny car, and it was just unbelievable. And the women knew nothing about photography, yet they knew everything about life, so they were able to immediately take pictures that were full of meaning. So, the book is called Crazy and Proud, and it's about all kinds of different mental illness. And I'm trying to talk to people, I'm talking to, to many of these I'm talking to many different people, you know, who have all kinds of different things. Lowell conducted interviews with most of the women he met, and their stories make up the bulk of his book. He shared some of his original recordings with me, and I'm going to play an excerpt from one of them for you now. This is a woman he calls Lee. Okay, you want me to tell you what mine is, what I'm diagnosed as? All right. I'm diagnosed as paranoid, schizophrenic, personality disorder, borderline type, and manic depressive. Okay, so you're bipolar, but you also are schizophrenic. What's truly amazing about Lowell Handler's project is not just that he teaches homeless, mentally ill women how to make art, but rather how he's able to open himself up and engage with these women so that they can teach him about what it really means to be, as Lowell calls his book, crazy and proud. Now, what is, what is it? What is, why don't you explain to people what is a paranoid schizophrenic? Somebody who's paranoid schizophrenic. What does that mean? Like if I'm walking down the block, like today, for instance, I was on my way to the train to go to the welfare. And this one person, maybe he was going in the same direction I was, or it was just coincident, but I could have sworn he was following me, that he was after me. So I kept stopping and standing and letting him go by me. And then I would walk, happen to be walking faster than him, and I walked by him, and he would still be behind me. And I just turned to him and I asked him, what the hell are you following me for, and who sent you? And he didn't know what the hell I was talking about, because I was going, I, I, I went to a slight rage with him. I like, did the FBI, did the CIA, is the DA out to get me, who sent you? And he was like, miss, what's wrong with you? I was like, I know you have to get me. I'm going to keep now, my eyes on you. Why do you think that some of its government organizations might be out to get you? I don't know. I just I just believe that they are. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. They just, they've been after me for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's a very convincing belief, isn't it? Yeah. Now, when you have a hallucination, <laughs> do you know that it's a hallucination before somebody tells you? No, I thought it was real. So you don't know that it's uh, the person is actually not there until somebody tells you. Yeah, but sometimes I know I'll be hallucinating, but it's okay, because to me, in my mind, it's real. Now, what are some of the other hallucinations you've had? Oh, those are the fantasy ones, that I'm some big old rock star. You know, I go through different little stages. Explain it, like you're up on stage and yeah, you're making the lights dollars. Yeah, the lights are I got this real glittering type dress. I got on this real hot hat and all these diamonds and pearls and, you know, the every, everything's focusing on me and I got this big old audience out there. Mm-hmm. And people are... Uh... Clapping for me. Yay! Okay. 
You know, and I be bowing and singing and doing whatever I'm doing. Sometimes I just be standing there, acting like I'm a model, like that thing right there. I had a little basket that's in the back room now. I had a little basket on my head right. one time, and I guess I was posing for the cameras and stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah, so they're, they're visions of grandeur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That you think that you're... Somebody that I'm not. The other night, I'm up late trying to finish a book about the history of concrete, when suddenly there's a knock at my door. Now, I'm not expecting anyone. I rarely get visitors, so I assume it's a delivery man, a delivery man unsure if the number on my door corresponds with the number on the piece of paper in his hand. This actually happens all the time. So when I swing open the door and discover an elderly gentleman clutching a large suitcase, I'm genuinely surprised. The man's clothing is soiled and disheveled. His eyeglasses are taped together, and there's food in his beard. I recalibrate my assumptions. This is not a delivery man. It's a religious fanatic. So before he can speak, I hold up my hand. I'm not interested, I say. Really, I'm not. Jesus, Yahweh, Muhammad, Jehovah, Krishna, Buddha, Elron, Hubbard, whoever it is, I'm not interested. And I apologize in advance if I've left your deity out, but please don't bother telling me his name because, as I said, I'm not interested. And furthermore, I hate to break this to you, but even if I was looking for some spiritual assistance, I assure you, I'd go elsewhere. Because the message you're conveying right now, it isn't good. I wouldn't want to be in the same sect as you. In fact, I'm willing to put my money down that whoever your God is, if he saw you right now looking like you do tonight coming towards him, he'd cross the street to the other side, praying all the while that you didn't see him. But once again, my assumptions were wrong. As I close the door, this man blurts out, I'm not pushing religion. I'm a traveling salesman. A door-to-door -door salesman? I look at his case, and yes, it is just like the ones that traveling salesmen carry in old movies. And this is when it hits me. I've never once in my life even had an encounter with a door-to-door -door salesman. And for some reason, this makes me incredibly sad. I'm dreadfully sorry, I apologize, and I take back all the disparaging remarks I've made about your character. Well, except for the God stuff. Now, you think this would make him laugh, or at least break a smile, but I get nothing. And we stand there for a few minutes, in total silence. So, tell me, I ask, not wanting to make any more assumptions, what is it exactly that you're selling? Humility, he says. My first reaction is to peer out into the hallway to see if any of my friends are out there or if there are any cameras. This does seem like the sort of thing you'd see on one of those hidden camera shows they make you watch on airplanes these days. But there's no one there. My curiosity gets the better of me. What kind of humility do you have, I ask. If you'd just let me come inside, he says, I'd be thrilled to show you my wares. I've got it all. Texts, liquids, suppositories, patches. Now, the thing you have to understand about humility is that almost every single religion on the planet 
Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam considers humility to be one of the, if not the highest, virtues. And I've always found this to be problematic because a religious interpretation of humility is being humble before God. And at the end of the day, this means submitting oneself to a higher power, to a God. Of course, there have been philosophic attempts to situate humility in ethics. Kant goes as far as to call humility a meta-attitude that constitutes the moral agent's proper perspective on himself as a dependent and corrupt but capable and dignified rational agent. But it's pretty much impossible to find a serious discussion about humility that doesn't veer into religious terrain. This is why I just can't bring myself to believe this traveling salesman. Are you trying to trick me, I ask? Like I said, I really don't want to share a sect with this guy. No, he says, flashing me a tight smile. While I am, of course, familiar with all the varieties of religious experience, I have other brands to show you. Now, for some reason, at just this moment, I recall this email I got from a listener a few weeks ago. I don't get much mail from listener land, which is fine. As much as I like hearing from you people, I'm aware that you're all busy with whatever it is you do. But a few weeks ago, I got this email from someone using the alias the one who knows at hotmail.com. I know it's an alias because my reply bounced back. And plus, who in their right mind would use an email like that for anything? No, this is the kind of fake email you have to anonymously send hate screeds to people you don't like. It would take me hours to read you all the mean things that the one who knows at Hotmail.com wrote to me. And to tell you the truth, I'd rather not. But I will share with you his or her sign-off. My advice to you, he or she wrote, is to stop it with all the self-deprecating jokes and try some honest-to-goodness, real humility. And then they followed with this. P.S. I really am your biggest fan. Now, there have been a number of high-profile studies done recently on the characteristics of the world's political and business elite. And curiously, all of the leaders at the top of the food chain share one thing in common. Yes, humility. Obviously, they're dosing. Think about it. There are drugs available for physical, sexual, and mental enhancement. Why not humility? In fact, I can't believe I didn't think of it before. In fact, perhaps it was my biggest fan who sent this guy, this peddler of humility, my way in the first place. Well... I don't care how he got here. I've decided to let him in. did not want to be in D.C. when the derecho hit. I mean, I knew it was coming, but I had a meeting I couldn't get out of with some folks at the Willard Hotel. Isn't stuff supposed to shut down when there's a chance that you could die from the weather? I mean, what, what kind of meeting did they make you go to? Uh, more drone stuff. Ah... Uh. But when the power went out, I was still there. I got stuck in the elevator. By yourself? No, there's one other guy who's like over in the corner, sort of <laughs> lurking in half darkness. He's got GOP, Red Wing Christian lobbyists written all over him. You know, he's got the button down suit, the, the slicked down hair, not the slicked back hair, the slicked over hair. Uh, American flag pin, you know, I, I know who this dude is. Have you ever been in an elevator when the power's gone out? 
No, no, actually. That's never, never happened to me. It's one of my worst nightmares, but it's never happened to me. It's not pleasant, but they're supposed to have emergency lighting that comes on, right? So at least you're not in a box in the dark. Well, now, you know, they, they, you've seen these captivate screens in, in elevators now, right? With the show like the news scroll or whatever. Yeah, like the ad network. Yeah, exactly. Well, apparently that is sufficing as emergency lighting. What do you mean? It appears that instead of a light overhead, they've decided to run that power over to the captivate screen. So the the only thing that's keeping you out of darkness is the ad screen? Yeah, it is terrifying. It was just like being in the dark watching TV. Wait, you guys like aren't even talking to each other? Right, we have been captivated. The thing you don't notice about the captivate screen normally is this loop, like day-to-day situation. You get on the elevator, you ride up a few floors, you hit a couple of these stories and you walk off. And then, you know, it's somewhat informative even. But if you're stuck there for six, seven, eight, 10, 12 hours, like I was, it's the loop, man, that makes you just want to hang yourself. Really? So like, it was just like a couple stories on loop. It was three stories. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes' divorce. Higgs boson discovery. Wildfires in Colorado. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes' divorce. Higgs boson discovery. Wildfires in Colorado. Over and over and over and over again. So when the Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes story comes up for the 18th bajillionth time, which is mostly Tom jumping around in his village people outfit, I look at the guy and I say, looks like somebody saw Rock of Ages this weekend. Ha! That's funny. I actually have heard that joke from like 10 different people now. Clearly, we are not the only ones that had that thought. <laughs> but this guy doesn't laugh at all. He, In fact, he, he moves a little bit further into the corner. I don't want to, I don't want to offend him. I don't want any animosity. So I, I just feel like I have to explain my joke. You know, I'm, in, I'm trapped in an elevator with this guy. So I say... A lot of people are speculating that Tom Cruise is gay. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't have any firsthand knowledge, but that, that's just, that's what everybody says, and that's what the, that's what the joke. Meant. So he says, you know, very matter of fact tone. Well, either he's gay, which is against the Bible, or he's in a cult and he doesn't believe in Jesus. But either way, I'm afraid he's going to hell. Whoa. Yeah. And so this is when I notice that over top of the American flag pin, there is a giant golden cross gleaming in the light of the Captivate screen. So I'm looking at this guy thinking like, okay, I I do not want to talk about this anymore. And luckily right then he points at the Captivate screen. He says, oh, well, what do you think about the Higgs Boston? The, the what? Well, he meant to say the Higgs boson, you know. So, but he said it wrong. I didn't feel like correcting him, so I said, "I said, oh, the God particle." And he said, "Well, you know, actually, the reason I'm here is because I was just at a meeting of my organization. We are trying to ensure that the media does not refer to this as the God particle, but God's particle." Organ? What? What organization is he? Like family matters? Well, I don't. I asked him that. He just said it was uh, like a super PAC, but for God and the media. So, I I just I know a little bit about physics, and so I said, well, you know that the, the whole God particle. I mean, it used to be referred to among physicists as as the goddamn particle because it is so fundamental to the standard model of physics and yet it was one the one particle that they could not actually find so it was like where is this goddamn particle yeah right like they couldn't find the particle it was an important thing to tie together the standard model of particle physics but when i tell this guy the story he gets really excited like he's like no way that's an amazing story and he gets this big goofy grin on his face and, and that's when I get the idea. I'm going to talk to this guy about science. I say, 
imagine Jesus traveling through heaven and he sees Mary Magdalene there's there's going to be an attraction between the two because they have they have mass and he's like what do you mean attraction and I'm like no no not not sexual attraction I'm talking about gravity and he says so the Higgs boson is like gravity and I say eh, nah not really it's more fundamental than that think about if you're in church and you see the stained glass windows and you see the light coming from Jesus and coming from Mary Magdalene it's like an inner glow well the Higgs field actually gives them that glow if they didn't have the glow if they weren't if they weren't imbued with that spirit which is what gives them mass they wouldn't see each other and so instead of interacting they would pass by each other in darkness and he's like oh man so it's not god's particle it really is the god particle so wait i'm confused have you like just won this guy over to science <laughs> no no in fact his next question is well can the higgs boson explain why we're trapped in this elevator and right then the captivate screen switches to the colorado wildfires and it's just like this picture of an inferno you know and i i say no we're trapped in this elevator because of a derecho which is an extreme weather event driven by global warming and what did he think of that he flipped out if i had told him that i was a gay scientologist he would have had a better reaction than when i told him that i believed in global warming he's literally bouncing off the wall his eyes are crossed he's waving his hands around this is a, it's a liberal plot it's not true nobody can prove this and i'm looking at him and his face is just beat red and i and i think that for a minute it's just a reflection from the the light from the captivate screen because it's on the fires but when the image switched back to tom cruise prancing around in his rock of ages outfit his face was still be red so then what happened nothing what do you mean nothing i told you there were only three things on the captivate loop tom cruise and katie holmes higgs boson and the wildfires we we were done there was nothing else to talk about This episode of Too Much Information is called We Are In This Together. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Sylvie Kovnat. It featured Peter Choice, Margaret Atwood, Tim Kreider, Lowell Handler, more information on his book at crazyandproud.com, and TMI's special correspondent, Chris. There's even more information on the TMI playlist page, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. All that and more at WFMU.org. 